This Dharma talk by Joan Sutherland, secret lover, guest, and host, was given at the Desert Rain Retreat in Tucson, Arizona on February 29, 2010. Good evening, Bodhisattvas. How's everybody? Tired. Tired? Is it a bit tired? Tonight I wanted to um, to pick up a few threads from the retreat, uh, things that we've talked about here in the hall and things that have come up in work in the room, and so also give you a chance to um, bring anything up you'd like to, ask any questions, or, or have, if you've had further brilliant insights about what we've been talking about, I'd love to hear that. We'd all love to hear that. Um, in no particular order. The, the first thing I think I'll talk about is the notion of um, non-attachment or detachment. Because there is a kind of um, stereotype about Zen that the goal or a byproduct or something of the practice is uh, removal from the world or uh, an ability to not be affected by things so much, a kind of um, imperviousness to the world. And that the the nature of the Zen response to suffering is just not to feel things. <laughs> just to, <laughs> I guess this is the simplest way to, to put it. If life is tough, just don't feel anything. And um, actually, you know, nothing could really be further from the, the truth. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that because I think it's, it's really important. Um, when we talk about non-attachment or detachment or equanimity or any of those words in that area in, in Zen, we're not talking about a, an uncoupling from the world. In fact, what we're talking about is a clearing away of the things that get in the way of our having an intimate and quite real and vivid relationship with the world. Most of that stuff is of our own making. And so most of the work is about deconstructing the, the constructs of thought and feeling and habit and opinion and criticism and judgment and all that stuff that creates this kind of um, Lego set, you know, scaffold that we walk around in that, that distances us from the world. So... We're talking about a kind of withdrawal of allegiance from that distancing scaffolding so that we can have a more direct relationship with the world. Um, Just for a moment, imagine that the narrative voice in your head the, the voice that's always telling you how you ought to feel about things and what you ought to think about things and what things, most importantly, what things mean to you, right? Every situation, every encounter, every, everything that happens, what does this mean to me? Um, that has the judgments and opinions and all of that. Imagine that there were a separate person who was like that had all those opinions, all those judgments, and voiced them all the time. (laughs) Would you want to be intimate with this person? Would you want this person anywhere near you? (laughs) 
just, you know, <laughs> consider for a moment. And yet, most of us, for some of the time at least, carry around a version of that person inside ourselves. In some ways, at some times, our most intimate relationship is with that voice, that set of beliefs and opinions. When you think about it like that, it might be easier to imagine um, not paying so much attention (laughs) to her or him. So um, in, in this way, in the koan way, one thing we do to address the problem of the secret lover, let's call this creature the secret lover, the, the sort of bad affair we're having that we're too ashamed to tell anybody about, we're too ashamed to sort of take home to, to, to meet anybody, but there he or she is. Um, um, so one, one of the ways we deal with the secret lover is we do try to deconstruct. We do try to not take it for granted, to, to question the opinions and the judgments and all of that stuff. To say, you know, can I really know this is true? Does this seem real to me? Um, do I really feel this way? Am I really afraid in the way that the secret lover is telling me I ought to be afraid in this moment? All that kind of stuff. And so we do that kind of painstaking work of, of deconstruction. Um, But in this way, there's something else that has to go along simultaneously with that because the deconstruction isn't enough. It's too hard. You know, it's too hard to spend all your time going, you know, and endlessly kind of looking inward and being introverted and examining how you think and feel about and how it reacts to everything and, you know, enough. Uh, And so fortunately, that isn't all we do. The other thing that we do is... If we, if we persist in the practice, if we take it up with sincerity and commitment, we'll begin to spend more and more time not face-to-face with the secret lover, but in a much larger field. Things will begin to open up. We will begin to get that bigger perspective we've been talking about. We will, we will see more and more with the eyes of the vastness, which is to say with the eyes of reality. We will notice that it, not everything is just like this, just what's pressed up against our face, that we and everything else are rising together in a really big field. And the more we practice, the more dedication we give to it, the bigger and more open and more spacious that field becomes. So we don't have to just deal with what's wrong. We don't have to just endlessly confront the secret lover and ask her to be quiet. Simultaneously, we have this experience of what we and the secret lover rise in, which is this big field. And the more we have that experience, the more we know that, the easier it becomes to switch our allegiance from this relationship to this experience of the way things are. And what's so great about that is that this experience, the experience of the expansive field, is truer. It's closer to what's actually going on. This might be sometimes really compelling, but it's a tiny, tiny, tiny slice of what's actually going on. This is closer 
So when we're doing this, it's not only kinder and easier and more beautiful and more inspiring, it's also truer. So great, right? And what we've discovered is it's really important to be cultivating experiences of that larger space at the same time that we're doing the painstaking work of the deconstruction of the constructed self. Because um, when you have the experience of the larger space, it, it actually becomes difficult to move back into the small room with the constructed self. It actually becomes difficult to do. You don't want to do it anymore. And um, so you don't have to kill anything or cut anything off at the knees or repudiate anything. There's just a natural movement of allegiance from one to the other over time with dedication and perseverance. And that's what we're talking about in Zen, in Koan Zen. When we talk about non-attachment, we're talking about decoupling from the secret lover, decoupling from that endless um, obstruction between ourselves and the world, and actually moving more into the world with an open chest, with open hands. Okay, does that... Does that make sense? Is that clear? Mm-hmm. Any any questions or comments about that part? Okay. So something that's, um, I think, r- related to that, and I'll probably figure out why I think it's related to it as I talk, because I'm not sure it's going in. Mm-hmm. But um, I was thinking a lot about... about um, the nature of sorrow, especially after our, our conversation last night. And that the promise of Koan Zen is not that you will never feel sorrow. Again, you will reach some point and have some magical experience, and after that, you will never feel sorrow again. In fact, the promise is probably you will feel sorrow more vividly and more acutely than you do now because you've cleared away the obstructions, because you don't have the buffer between you and reality. And yet, the curious thing is, you will want to. You will want to. Again, because it's realer, it's truer. So, it seems to me that all of us, or most of us, most of us begin with a kind of young sorrow, an immature sorrow. And that's the sorrow of, um, I'm, not, I'm not getting what I want. I'm not getting what I need. Or, the world shouldn't be like this. Those, that's where we begin with sorrow. That's the young sorrow. Where we have a fundamental existential complaint about what's happening in our lives or about the way things are. And so we're in an existential position of conflict with the way things are because we don't want them to be that way. That's hard. That's a tough way to live. And it's where most of us spend a lot of time 
or at least begin. The desire in, in that young sorrow is to fix things, to, fix, to see those things as a problem that need to be fixed. I want to get what I want or think I need. I want the world to be different, and it, the world would be better if it were different in the way I think it ought to be. So we want to fix it. Again, what happens if we practice and we persist and we're dedicated and all of that is not that we lose that sorrow, but that it becomes transformed. It's transformed into a mature sorrow. And the nature of that mature sorrow, I believe, is something like, here is this world, and there is so much that is achingly beautiful about it. And there is so much that is achingly sorrowful about it. All at the same time, it is gorgeous, it is horrifying, sometimes it's boring, it's tedious and frustrating, it's um, beyond anything we can describe, it's the most ordinary thing, it's the most extraordinary thing. In other words, it's not one thing. It's a whole bunch of things all at the same time, all mixed together. And the more we can experience all of that simultaneously without sorting it into piles of good and bad or things I want to experience and things I don't want to experience or any of that, the more we can just take place with it and let it in something begins to happen where the sorrow of things is right next to the beauty of things. Not so distant. Um, I was working with someone a number of years ago who was um, a very forceful personality and not one necessary necessarily to notice details. And he, he came one night and he said, I just saw the most amazing thing. I was, we were sit, I was sitting meditation with a group of people and I looked around the room and I noticed that everybody's chest was rising and falling as they breathed. And he said it was the most tender thing I had ever seen in my life. Everybody's chest rises and falls when they breathe. It was miraculous to him. And um, he had been very depressed. And when he said that, I knew he was going to be okay. Not because, okay, well, I was depressed, but I threw away you know, the crutches, and now I'm walking, and things are fine. It wasn't some kind of like depressed and then not depressed. It was that his depression had become tenderness. He had seen the poignancy of things, and it was exactly the depression, the willingness to suffer, that opened him to the ability to see the tenderness and the poignancy of things. Do you know what I mean? Okay. So, mature sorrow is a recognition of that poignancy. It's so hard being alive, and we go on doing it. You know, 
every morning the sun sweeps across the planet and in a way following the sun people and animals and plants and everything gets up and says one more time (laughs) and that's miraculous and that's the tenderness of life the poignancy of life that includes the sorrow as well as the beauty and I think that's what happens our this isn't right, it should change, I've got to fix it, sorrow becomes how poignant life on this planet is. And I can feel that, I can bear that. In fact, I want to feel and bear that because that's the truest thing and I am no different and it is no different from me. We move from a stance of wanting to fix things to a stance of wanting to care for them. That's exactly what happens. When we have that mature sorrow, it's no longer a matter of making things right. It's a matter of caring for things. So again, it's not detachment. It's not removal from the world or turning one's back on it. It's actually a deeper desire to care for what is real rather than to fix our idea of what is wrong. Sometimes as much of caring as we can do is not turning away. You know, sometimes that, at that moment, that's as far as we can get. It's, okay, I won't turn away. You know, I can't do anything yet. And because what I care for is the whole situation, including myself in the situation... I will do what I can. I will begin to walk on the road of caring by not turning away. And should should a time come when I can take another step, I will do that. That's my commitment. The last thing I wanted to to talk about was um, Linji's. Um, if wherever you are, you take the role of host, then that place is a true place. Because I understand that you worked with it as a group here in, in Tucson, and that it, it seems from, from my conversations with people to have had a lot of power for people. So I thought perhaps I'd talk um, a little bit about, about that. Um, it comes... Linji used this a lot. It was one of his, um, his main tropes. And it comes from an idea um, in, in Chan about the host and the guest. And there are lots of different levels to look at host and guest. Maybe the easiest way to enter is to think about host and guest as being the two roles that people can take in a relationship. Um, the host is the one who welcomes, who provides, who is in the position of being able to give something. And the guest is the one who arrives and asks and is in the position of receiving something. And um, the, the, the Chan thought is that we, we can exchange those roles all the time. And in fact, the liveliest relationship, the one that has the most juice in it, is the one between two people or a group of people where, where guest and host are always trading places, where one person acts as the host and the other the guest, and then they switch, and it goes the other direction. So there's this very lively interchange happening where there's no sort of fixed position that anybody's taking, but people are moving fluidly from the position of giver to the position of receiver, and, and like that. 
Um, there are also times when the relationship can move into host meets host. And when you have host meets host, it's when you've got a true meeting of heart minds. And um, you're sort of, we would say, you're really looking into each other's eyes. The, the koans would say, your eyebrows are entangled. <laughs> so it's those moments, you know, when your eyebrows are entangled, when you're really looking eye to eye. And there's a, there's a perfect meeting, and there's just host and host. There's, there's just this thing going back and forth on, on one level. Um, there's also guest and guest, which is when you've got a meeting of two people who are both um, avowing, I am not certain, and are looking together. And there's something going on that's unfinished and alive and you know maybe clumsy and all of that, but... But something's happening. There's something really juicy there going on. And they're together um, looking uh, for something at the same time. Um, okay, so those are, those are sort of the, the human relationships that are meant by host and guest. But, but right behind that all the time when, when people use these words is another sense of host and guest. In the, in the biggest picture, the vastness, the universe, emptiness, is the host, is the ultimate host. And everything that manifests, all phenomena, are the guests. So everything from the quantum foam, through the subatomic particles, through you, to the Milky Way, you know, and everything that... that, that in some way manifests within, out of um, that universe is, is the guest. We're all the guests. And that sense is always right there. It's very, it's quite a powerful thing to imagine we are guests to this vast host of the universe. So if that's so, the thinking was, it would be good to learn how to be a good guest. It would be really, really important since it's so fundamental to who we are and what we are. So I wanted to talk a little bit about um, ways to be a good guest to the host of the universe. There's... um. There's a koan that's similar to the one we, we read last night, which ends, fortunately, I'm here to do it, about making tea. And in that one, um, person A says to person B, work, 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 all you do is work. What's up with that? And person B says, I do it for another. And this another is a really important character in the koans. The, this another or the other gets referred to over and over and over again. And in this context, and in most contexts, that other is the host in the biggest sense, is the universe itself, is the Tao, is Dharmakaya, whatever name you want to give it, God, whatever name you want. I do it for another. Well, why? Why do you do it for that other? And the reply is, because it has no hands. This is one of the most important things in Chan. Our job is to be the hands of the universe. That other, that perfection, that radiance, that eternal now, 
is already perfected, is complete, is done, can't act, can't move, can't change by its nature. We are the ones who can move, act, change, fix, care for, love, get it wrong, get it right, do all of that. We are the hands, we are the eyes, we are the hearts and the minds of that host. That's our job as guests. Um, In another koan, someone asks a question, which I think occurs to everybody at one time or another. Someone asks a teacher, okay, so you, you got there, you got to where everything is perfect and shining and radiant and eternal. Why didn't you stay there? And Lianhua Feng responds, because it has no power for the way. To stay in emptiness, to stay in that perfection, doesn't feed the children, doesn't get the relief to Haiti, doesn't do any of the things that need doing in the world. It has no power for the way. And it's our job to have power for the way. We bring skill and care and we bring the warmth. The perfect world is perfect and it's a little cool. We bring the warmth. That's not a small job to have. That's not an insignificant job. It's a pretty gorgeous job, actually, if you think about it. Okay, so one way to be a good guest is to have power for the way, to be the hands, to be willing to do what needs doing in that aspect of the world that is not yet perfected, that is not complete, that is by its nature constantly changing, completely impermanent. That's our um, arena where we can make a difference, where we can do something. Um, Another way we can be a good guest, if if there's that way of trying to to help, um, trying to complete, another thing we can do is enjoy. A good guest is a joyful guest. (laughs) So... um, I'm going to tell this all through the koans to give you a flavor for how the the koans hold and embody and encapsulate these these ideas. So there was a a Chinese teacher named Fayan, and when he was um, on his journey toward awakening, he was working in a mill shed in one of the monasteries, and there was a giant, they had these huge uh, stone millstones that were, I don't know, 8 feet, 10 feet in diameter that would grind the grain. And he was in the shed, and, this, and the millstone was going around, and one of the other um, people who was working with him said, so, does the millstone turn by supernatural power, or does it turn naturally? So it's a sort of invitation to a philosophical debate and Fayan hitched up his robes to his waist and put his hand on the millstone and just walked around with the millstone, just circumambulated the millstone. Now, I read that as his saying, <coughs> supernatural power, natural power. The point is it's turning. The essential fact here is that the stone is turning and I will turn with it. So part of being a good guest is being willing to turn. If the stone is turning, you turn with it. You take delight in the way things are, and you join in, you participate. 
So there's the feel the poignancy, have empathy, do what you can to help part, and there's the just plain love it and enjoy it part. And both of those are really essential to being, um, to being good guests, I think. The paradox <clears throat> is that <clears throat> excuse me, if the, if the universe, which is made up of everything in the universe, is the host, that means in some way we're also the host because we're part of the universe. So we are the guest, but we are also simultaneously the host. So how can we be good hosts? How can we represent well? One way, it seems to me, we can do is something we've touched on several times during this retreat, and that is to to hold a big view, to step back, to pull the camera back, to see the larger field, to do as much as we can to get out of the too small, too constricted, too local, and bring in that larger view, which is the view of the host to make sure that somehow that is, um, that's part of it. That's part of what's going on. We can look for ways that we can welcome and include and offer in large ways and in small ways. We can take the role of host wherever we are, as Linji suggests. We can actively look for the ways we can do that. We can allow our allegiance to be pulled from the secret lover to the large field. That's a way to become a host, more of a host. And we can gladly, or as gladly as it's possible to, take on both the roles of host and guest simultaneously. And when we look at each other, see each other as host and guest. And see the possibilities of, you know, in my relationship with Michael, how do we dance that? How do we keep changing positions? How do we bring all of that in? How do we move host to host sometimes and guest to guest sometimes? Um, how do we let the rest of it go? At least sometimes. And concentrate on, in our relationships with each other, in our relationships with other things, with the other things and beings of the world, with events. How do we let go our habitual ways of relating to things and approaching things? and come each time with a question. Host, guest, who is the... the, In the Coens they ask over and over, which phrase is the host, which phrase is the guest? There's something to ask. Which phrase is the host, which phrase is the guest in this situation? And how might it change? How might we dance with that? It seems to me good practice 
to consciously try to do that rather than slipping into the habitual ways of dealing with other people and with situations um, and with events. And when we do that, we are strengthening our allegiance with the big field, with the vastness, with the host inside ourselves and outside ourselves. We are saying, this is where my fidelity is. This is where my commitment is. This is what I want to make more of to support there being more of in the world. And that seems to me like not a small thing, not an insignificant thing, but a way to bring what we gain on the cushion and in the rest of our practices immediately into the world giving it away immediately. For, we hope, the benefit of all. And that movement is essential because our practice is not complete until we do that. It doesn't matter what kind of experiences you have on the cushion or walking around outside looking at the mountains. It makes no difference at all if you don't somehow find power for the way, if you don't throw that out your hands and into the world. So, host and guest, inside you, outside you, everywhere. Um, Greeting each other with, I am not certain. <laughs> you know, when we, when we have that idea of uh, that other or mm-hmm. another as being the, the big host, <laughs> <laughs> um, it reminds us that we're in the position of receiving the miraculous, constant outpouring of life. You know, life is just pouring out of that host all the time without stop. I remember um, once after a retreat, I went home and um, was taking a nap, and I lived in this little house at the the last at the end of the road, which was the last house before the the ocean, seven miles away, so kind of remote. And I remember lying down for the nap and waking up suddenly and, and thinking, ah. Oh, The light shines everywhere, all the time. It never wavers, it never blinks, it never forgets anything, it never flickers. You know, nothing ever falls outside of it. And just being overwhelmed by the miraculousness of that. And that's the gift of the host to us, that life continues in this unbelievable, universe-large rushing So, make a cup of tea? Yeah. (laughs) You know, it seems seems like little enough to do in the face of of what that other is offering. Yeah, I I, I think a lot about um, 
Abraham's tent. Like in the in the Bible, the um, really the strong symbol for that kind of generosity and hospitality is Abraham's tent. But it's Abraham's tent. He makes a tent and opens the tent, and the tent is abundant, and the tent has everything everybody needs. Not not Abraham, the tent. Yeah. You know. So there's no catching of the who's who's in what role. There's the provision of the field in which generosity can happen. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think of the last line of the the Pongling Jiao Koan, you know, where when her father trips and falls and she throws herself down next to him. And, and, and he's, he asks, what are you doing? And she says, I saw you fall, so I'm helping. But then the last line is, he says, luckily no one is looking. And what you're, what you're talking about is no one is looking. No one's keeping score. No one's observing. You know, it's just happening. Is this, this is where we tell Keith Johnston's story about the... The, the the clowns the the little um, the little clowns with the the balloon bats who what is it there are four of them and a guy walks around the corner and and the and the four clowns jump on him and start beating him with the balloon bats and then in the next scene another guy's walking around the corner and now there are five clowns <laughs> waiting to um, okay if if a poem has really come to get you like that mostly what you have to do is pay attention and listen to it and it'll tell you what to do um, keep company with it as much as you can okay um, sounds like for at the moment that's not going to be hard but keep going once you're once you've left bring it into your meditation carry it around with you during the, the non-Christian time um, let, it, let it have its way with you make yourself available for it um, it's really good to be able to talk about it Tenny, can she talk with you about that? yeah? okay so, yeah um, talk with Tenny that's, it's, that's a really important part of it um, but just keep, stay with it let it fill things up for as long as it's alive like that and that's great yeah stillness that is underneath both activity and silence noise and silence and sometimes in practice we can mistake stillness for quiet and that stillness isn't dependent on quiet and isn't dependent on anything at all and, is, it, and can be there as much in chaos as it can in, in quiet. So sometimes it's really necessary to withdraw a bit to be able to touch that stillness, but once you have, it's not dependent on any kind of circumstances. You don't have to keep things any particular way for it to be there because it's underneath everything including the most riotous chaotic of situations does that make sense? Yeah. yeah thank you all so much for your good participation and your good attention I really, I really appreciate it very much these talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works To learn more about her teachings 
and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at jonesutherlanddharmaworks.org.